certainly not a prophet and don't know the future. I can't tell you everything that you're going to face throughout this week ahead of you. But I can say that there's something that I'm sure every one of us will face in one form or one fashion in the days ahead of that, of us, and that is temptation. In one way or another, every single one of us, whether it's today or tomorrow or Tuesday or sometime later this week, or every one of those days, we will be tempted in some way, in some form, in some fashion. Maybe it will be some small temptation that we don't think much about. Maybe it will be something incredibly tempting that's very hard for us to overcome. But the truth is, every one of us are going to be tempted because that's part of life. We have an adversary. As Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5 verse 8, and thus we must be sober-minded and watchful because our adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's an important message. It's an important reminder. We have an actual enemy. Now that may be strange and difficult for us to really think about. As I look on my life, there have been people that I've worked with or been around that maybe annoyed me or got under my skin or maybe back when I was in school there may have been little rivalries you know that happened amongst classmates but I can't say that I really think I've ever had someone that I could honestly say was an enemy in the sense at least of someone that I felt like they truly hated me from the bottom of their soul that they just despised me and they wanted to hurt me. They wanted to do everything they could to cause me pain and suffering. I'm thankful to say that I don't think I've ever had a person like that in my life. And most of us, that's probably the case. Again, we may have had bad relationships. We may have had people that were annoyed with us or we were annoyed with. But most of us have probably rarely had someone that has truly deep down hated us. And yet, all of us have a being that hates us. And that is Satan. He truly despises you. He hates you. And he wants the worst possible outcome for you. He wants you to be lost and separated from God forever. He wants you to spend eternity in torment. And so he is going to go about his business with his full ability to do whatever he can to pull you away from God. And this is not just some school rivalry. Or sibling rivalry. Or person at the workspace that doesn't get along with us. This is a being. Who has existed for millennia. Is very powerful. and Very good at what he does. And he's after you. And he's after me. He's after our children. He's after our congregation. He is prowling about like a roaring lion. Seeking whom he may destroy and devour. And that may be frightening, and it should be, because he will try in some way, in some form, this week, to cause us to fall. But as frightening as that is, we aren't unprepared, or we shouldn't be unprepared. We don't have to be unprepared. You see, while we have an enemy that is against us, we also have a God who is for us, and who cares for us, and who loves us. We know that from the very fact that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And yet also he has shown to us in his word 
that we have this enemy. He has revealed the enemy to us. Not only has he revealed that there is an enemy and who he is, but he even has shown us in many ways how the enemy works. When Paul was writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11, he said that so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Paul told the Corinthians, he said, we don't have to be outwitted by Satan. Yes, he's a powerful, a cunning being. But we don't have to be outwitted. It's not like we're going up against Satan unprepared, or at least we shouldn't be. You see, God has made sure that if we are willing to read and study his word, we can know how Satan works. And if we know how the enemy works, if we have that intel on the enemy, then we can prepare and we can be prepared. And thus we can be ready by the grace and the power of God on our side to overcome the enemy and to face temptation, and to be able to handle it successfully. So for a little while this morning, I want to talk about some of the ways that Satan works. How Satan tempts us, and how he tries to pull us away from God. There's a lot of places in Scripture that we could go, but for our study this morning, I want to go all the way back to the very beginning, and the very first time that we read about temptation occurring amongst humanity. And this, of course, is in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read about what Satan says and what he does there as he speaks with Eve. This is recorded for us in Genesis 3 verses 1 through 6. I'll read that and you can, you're welcome to follow along in your own Bibles if you would like. But in Genesis chapter 3 beginning in verse 1 the Bible says, Now a serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the tree of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This is, one of the, this is the first bad thing that we really read about in the Bible. We read about how Satan enters the scene and tempts Eve, and it's successful. So I'd like to look for a little while at what Satan does because the truth is when you study out the rest of scriptures, especially when you look at what Satan does in Matthew chapter 4 as he's tempting Jesus, he really uses the same playbook. And he does the same thing and he has done the same thing throughout the thousands of years of human history because it's so very, very effective. Now, as we, before we talk about what Satan did, let's look at what God had done and what God had given to Adam and Eve. Of course, as we read through Genesis 1 and 2, God has created the world and the universe and all of its glory and splendor and majesty. And he's formed man and he has formed a woman and he has placed them in the Garden of Eden. This beautiful, perfect paradise that has been prepared for them. And he has not only placed them there and given them dominion over the world that he has created, but he has given them provision. He's given them everything that they need. The trees and the, uh, the fruit of the earth produces so that they can have what they need without all of the toilsome labor that 
mankind would have to put into growing and cultivating his sustenance after the fall. It was a much easier process then. So God was providing for them. But not only was he providing for them, but he gave them things to do. He told them in Genesis 2 verse 15 to keep the garden. That was an active thing that they were to be doing. There was a a labor. And sometimes we look at work as a bad thing. I think it was Ron Corder that said this. Um, He said, the curse, the fall did not bring about work. The curse just took the fun out of it. See, in the garden, man had a job to do. Man had work to perform. Sometimes we look at work and we think our desire is to not work. But God created humanity to work. God worked. The six days of creation are described as work. But the work that God gave man was a beautiful work, a perfect work. It was a joyful work in the garden to keep and to tend that garden that God had produced for mankind. But he also gave man a prohibition. Back in chapter 2 verses 16 and 17, as he told them about the provision that he had given them, God said, there is one tree in the midst of the garden. This is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he said, you don't eat the fruit from that tree. Now, this wasn't God just being spiteful and being mean. God says, the reason you don't touch this tree, the reason you don't eat from this tree, is because the day you eat from this tree, you will die. Now, some people look at God in this story and they say, well, that seems rather arbitrary and mean of him to just put this tree here and say, well, you can't have this. But think about this. If you're a parent, you tell your children, don't play in the street. Do you do that because you just want to rob the joy out of their little hearts? Because you know that the street is such a wonderful place to play. And you don't want them to have that much fun. And you just want them to, you want them to learn the meaning of no a little bit. And so you say, no, you can't go play in the street. That's not why you, do, you tell your kids not to play in the street. You tell your kids not to play in the street because it's bad for them. Because it's dangerous. Because they could be hurt or killed. God says, you don't eat of this tree. Because that would be rebellion against me. And rebel against me would bring about death. Now, it's not really a bad deal for humanity, is it? There's an entire world, an entire paradise of provision. There's one tree that God says, you don't eat of its fruit. We had a really good deal going at the very beginning. But then Satan comes in. And as we just read the conversation He messes everything up. So how did he do this? How was he able to get Adam and Eve, beings that were created by God, that had a relationship with God that you and I can only imagine and envy, a closeness and unity with God. They lived in a perfect world. They didn't have any evil influence on them outside of this conversation with the serpent. And still he's able to get them to sin. What does he do? Well, first of all, we see that Satan questioned God's word. Look again at verse 1. It says that he, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast. And that he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice what Satan does. This was, pretty, this was a pretty simple question to answer. In fact, Eve does the right thing. She's going to answer it with the word of God. But notice what it does. It places a seed of doubt. Now, God's instructions, as we just, you can go back and read Genesis chapter 2. God's instructions are pretty clear. I've given you all the trees and the fruit, but don't eat of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Because when you do that, you'll die. And Satan comes and says, now did God actually say that you can't eat of all of the trees of the garden? And that may seem silly. That may seem, you know, well, who would fall for that? 
And yet Satan has been so effective at deceiving people throughout the world's history by causing doubt, even over very simple matters. Paul cautioned the Corinthians. Again, we'll refer to his second Corinthian letter in chapter 11, verse 3. He says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And the way that Satan began deceiving Eve was by questioning the word of God. Now, when I say that, don't take that the wrong way. I'm not saying that if you ever have questions, that, that's a, that you're evil. That Satan has influenced you. All of us have questions. There are things we read about in the Bible and we think, I don't understand that. I wonder what that means. That's natural. Maybe we grow up in a, a, a family that goes to church, that goes to the Lord's church. And so we learn some of the things that are taught, but maybe we don't know why we do the things that we do. And so we question, well, why do we worship this way? Why do we teach this? Why do we practice this? And we have questions. That's perfectly fine. That's perfectly natural. In fact, we need to prove our faith. We need to study and prove why we do what we do. That type of questioning is perfectly acceptable and perfectly fine. But I will say this, when we have questions, they need to be answered. When we begin to question something, we need to find an answer. Now, that's going to take some work. See, this is where some people get into problems. They have questions, but they don't put in the work to learn the answers. And Sometimes it takes a lot of work. It takes some study. It takes some struggle. It takes some conversations. Maybe it takes some openness to recognize some fault. And sometimes we don't want to put that work in, and so we let some question fester into a doubt and that doubt fester and grow into faithlessness. If you have questions, address them. Speak with the leader. Speak with the teacher. Let me know. I can honestly say that at our congregation, knowing our elders, and hopefully you believe and know this about me, if you have a question, ask it. We're not going to belittle you because you have some question. We're not going to belittle you because you ask about something you need some more understanding on. We would love to study and discuss and come to a full understanding of the truth. That's what we need to do. Okay? Because if we let questions fester and doubt grow, then likely we will be deceived. There's examples that we could look at. For example, Mark 16 verse 16. Jesus says there, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. That's a pretty simple statement. There's some, there's some difficult passages in the Bible. I'll admit, there's passages that I've looked at and studied and I still struggle with. There's also some really plain passages in Scripture. I don't mean this from a self-righteous sense. I don't mean this in some uh, high understanding sense. But there's passages that are pretty simple and they're straightforward. Like Mark 16, 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. And what has Satan done? Do you really have to be baptized to be saved? Did God really say you can't eat every of every tree in the garden? Such a simple question and look at how much damage it's done. It's very pointed. Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized. In Matthew, Jesus says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. When Peter's asked a question of what people need to do when they want to be saved, he said, repent and be baptized. Obviously, it's a bigger study. 
But the Bible is also very plain about the fact. We're not saved by baptism alone. But baptism is a part of God's plan for how we can accept his gracious gift of salvation. And be washed of our sins. And yet Satan is simply asked the question. Do you really have to be baptized? And look at the millions of people across the world. That have been deceived from the simplicity that is the gospel. We could go over many, many more examples. But I hope we see when we have questions, we need to answer them and we need to answer them with God's word. You know, I think that's exactly what Eve does. Eve did a good job. Some people don't think that she did, but I think she did. Um, I think that she emphasized the danger. She tells uh, the serpent in verse 2, we may eat of the fruit of the tree. She reminds him of what God has allowed. And he says, she says, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. She emphasizes, we're not supposed to go close to that tree. That's what you're supposed to do when you're tempted. You use God's word to answer those questions. But here's the bad news. When you're tempted, when you're questioned, and you overcome that question, like you're supposed to, like a good faithful Christian, Satan doesn't just give up. He didn't even do that with Jesus. If you remember in Matthew chapter 4, when he did something similar, he said, if you really are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus answered with scripture, and Satan didn't just run away. Satan came back with another temptation. And that's exactly what he does with Eve. She answers him. She says, no, we're not allowed to eat of this, this tree. So what does Satan do next? Instead of giving up, Satan lies. In verse 4, he says, you shall not surely die. Now, the first time, he didn't really lie or deceive. He just questioned. He said, is this really what God said? But now, now that she's quoting God, he just comes out and lies. Now, Jesus called the devil the father of lies. And this is where we see that birth. This is where we see the creation of Satan. And that is lies. As he contradicts what God says. God says when you eat of this. You will die. Satan says when you eat of this. You will not surely die. That is a direct contradiction. Of what God has said. Now some people. I've actually heard people that claim to be Christians. Say that Satan spoke the truth here. Not God. Because Adam and Eve didn't physically die. When they ate of the fruit. That's not what Satan was talking about. Adam and Eve absolutely did die that day. See, death is a separation. And when they partook of that fruit, there was a separation that occurred between them and God. Their relationship was never the same with God after that. Not on this earth. They were separated in a way that they could not repair from God. That was a death that was much worse than physical death. So yes, they absolutely did die. God had been speaking the truth. And physical death was a later reality because of that first death. But Satan contradicts God's word. He says, no, you won't surely die. Now, this is where everything should have stopped. Now, I, I think Eve had done the right thing so far. She had answered the question with God's word. But this is where her and I believe also Adam both begin to fail. Because the moment Satan contradicted God's word. That should have been the end of it. They should have clearly said no. That's not true. This is what God says. You're speaking the opposite of what God says. 
We want nothing to do with that. Now, some people wonder where Adam was. I think Adam is where the Bible says he was. He was with her. It says that, I don't know why the serpent was speaking with Eve. And I don't know why Adam hadn't interjected at all or never interjects. That would be all speculation to assume that. But later when she eats of the fruit, it says she gave to her husband who was with her. And so in my mind, it seems that Adam is there or at least close by. Now, Eve should have said, no, that's not right. But Adam also should have stepped in, especially as a leader, as the first in creation, as Paul makes analogies later. And he should have said, that's wrong. That's false. You see, leaders have a responsibility of correcting contradictions. When Paul gives the qualifications of elders in Titus 1 verse 9, he says that an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Paul talks about this to Timothy in 2 Timothy verses, uh, chapter 2 verses 14 through 18. There, uh, Timothy is encouraged not to be caught up in quarrels and uh, genealogies and those types of things, but to be a good worker who rightly handles the word of truth so that he can rebuke those who are upsetting the faith of others because they're teaching false doctrine. Our elders, myself as an evangelist, our men that are teachers, we have a special responsibility when we see that the word of God is contradicted, whether innocently or malevolently, when someone begins to speak something that is not in accordance with God's word, we have a responsibility to speak up and to teach the truth. But that responsibility does not lie only on the shoulders of our leaders. All Christians must be ready to give a defense. Remember Peter says in 1 Peter 3 and 15. In your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone. Who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Every one of us needs to be growing in our faith. And in our understanding. And needs to be growing in our ability and our preparedness. To answer questions. And to answer contradictions. That people might teach. How do we do that? Through the word. Remember Jesus told us what truth is. Our society may say there is no such thing as truth. But as Christians we cannot possibly subscribe to that notion. Because Jesus says in John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. How do we know when someone is lying? How do we know when someone's teaching a false doctrine? Is it because it goes against our traditions? Is it because it goes against my feelings? Is it because it's not my truth? No. We know when something is false and wrong when it contradicts God's word. Now for us to recognize that, what's that require of us? That requires us to know God's word. If you don't know God's word, and I'm not saying you have to be a scholar and have to have every single word memorized. But if you're putting no effort, no diligent effort into reading and studying and learning God's word. Not just what you've heard from others, but learning it for yourself. That is a terrifying situation. You know why? Because if you don't know, and if I don't know God's word... How in the world do you expect to recognize falsehood? How are you going to recognize falsehood if you don't 
know the truth. It's going to take some work and some effort to know the truth. So we should give ourselves to that diligently. Because Satan does not just lie. Satan does something else that's very dangerous as we see in the Genesis account. You see, Satan will lie and just outright contradict the truth when that's beneficial. But sometimes a much more subtle tactic is used, and that is he twists the truth. Look at what he says in verse 5. After contradicting God and saying, you will not surely die, he says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, when you really stop and break down that, argument of Satan you look at what he says it's not exactly a lie is it in fact in a sense what he said was true they would know good and evil and the fact that they knew good and evil in a sense they would be like God you see there's a very big difference God knew good and evil. And the difference between good and evil. Because God is perfectly holy and righteous. And anything that is against him. Contrary to him and his nature. Is evil. When Adam and Eve. Who had never sinned. But they also are not God. So when they partook of that fruit. That God had said don't eat of it. They would begin, they would understand for the first time in their existence the true difference between good and evil. But you know what the difference was? What Satan didn't tell them? They would understand the difference between good and evil because they had participated in evil. Oh, yeah, they would know the difference like God, but for a very, very different reason because they were evil. Not because they were wholly righteous like God. And so Satan took something. He took this scrap of truth. And he twisted it. And he presented it in such a way as to make a terrible thing seem appealing. And alluring. He's done that through the centuries. He tried to do that with Jesus. Go back and read Matthew chapter 4 again. And after he uh, uh, tempts Jesus with uh, the turning the stones into bread, and Jesus uses scripture. You know how Satan? You remember how Satan responds there? He does something you wouldn't think Satan was capable of doing. He quoted scripture. I can't remember exactly. I think it's Psalm ninety-one that he quotes, a pretty ambiguous psalm that most people don't even understand. Satan could quote it from memory. Satan knows his Bible. He can quote scripture perhaps as well or better than you and I can. Now why does he do that? Because he wants to twist it in order to deceive. And people still do that today. People are still fooled into that today. Remember Peter's warning in 2 Peter 3 verses 14 and 16. He says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and be at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in, in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable, the ignorant and unstable, twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. 
This is one of the difficulties of following the truth. Not everybody that's a false teacher is just going to outright lie. In fact, on the contrary, what they're typically going to do is they're going to take some nugget of truth and they're going to twist it out of context, out of meaning, to try and teach something else. One of the things that just boggles my mind is how many people can use scriptures to justify about anything. I've read articles and watched videos of people defending homosexuality. Adultery. Covetousness. Any sin you can possibly imagine. One of the, the most abhorrent examples that I recently saw. This is just, this is a glaring example. Usually they're not this obvious. I, I saw a man literally teaching that when Jesus told Lazarus in John chapter 11 to come forth. That that actually could be translated as come out. And it was Jesus encouraging homosexuals to come out. This man is a, a, a pastor using scripture and twisting it to justify what God calls sin. Now that's a very grievous example. There are so, so many more. People go to things like Ephesians 2 verse 8. It says you are saved by grace through faith and that not of works that any man should boast. And they'll just twist it a little bit and say you are saved by grace through faith alone. Call into question all those other scriptures. You know you are saved by grace through faith. That's true. But it's twisted to mean something other than what God meant. So we have to be very diligent to understand the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 20 says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Do you know God's word well enough to recognize a lie? Do you know God's word well enough to recognize when it's been twisted? We need to. And that takes work, that takes time, that takes growth. It takes community and protection. You know, when we have new members, we don't expect them to know all of the word of God. We don't expect them to know all of the arguments they may need to be armed with. And so we're there with them. We protect them. That's the job of leadership. But all of us need to be growing and preparing. And then the last thing I want to notice that Satan does here is Satan appeals to what man can't have. This isn't part of his argument it's just you look at what he does. God gave mankind an entire world. He created a, a universe that's unimaginable, uncomprehensible. He created a world and gave man dominion over it. He gave man a world's worth of trees and valleys and mountains and animals and produce and beauty and wonder. And in all of this grand creation, there was one tree that God said, don't eat of this. And you notice when Satan comes to Eve, he doesn't say, wow, look at this place. This is pretty amazing, isn't it? God sure is giving and loving and generous and kind and wonderful to give you all of these things. No, Satan comes and he says, God hasn't given you every tree 
of the billions of trees and fruit producing plants in this world. He hasn't given you every single one of them. Boy, that seems pretty shady, doesn't it? He appeals to what man can't have. Imagine someone gave you a dollar less than a billion dollars. Would you be upset? Would you be mad that they were stingy and not generous? Of course not. Yet Satan could make you feel that way. He'll try. Think of all the things that God has given to us. And why do some people not want to be a Christian? You mean it means that I have to go to church every Sunday? I've got a job. I've got to make money. I've got to support myself. You mean I have to make decisions to be at the Lord's house every Sunday? Because that's what, yes, that's what it means. Boy, that sure seems stingy. That sure seems like a lot. To give up one day a week. To worship my creator. And my savior. Who literally gave his blood and life for me. But you mean that God, God requires me to give up that, that adulterous affair? Or that fornication that feels so good and that I enjoy? Yes. Is that really that big of a requirement? Compared to the beauty and wonder of true godly love that God has prepared for mankind when we abide in his instruction as husbands and wives in a godly marriage. And the purity and the joy and the honor that purity brings. You go on, think of any, any sin. Really when we sin, we're choosing some very small thing that God has said, this is dangerous for you, so don't do it. And we think that that is more valuable than all of the wondrous blessings that God has given. You mean that I should be willing to give up my very life for the sake of Christ? That's not a small ask, is it? To be willing to die for Christ? Is it really that big of a thing when compared with eternity and eternal life? See, Satan causes us to focus on something so small and so narrow and miss all of the majesty and beauty and wonder of what God has actually given. So very quickly, how do we stop it? How do we overcome it? Obviously, Adam and Eve didn't. So how can we? Well, this could be perhaps a sermon in and of itself, but I'll go through this very quickly. First of all, stop temptation quickly. That was one of the things that I think Adam and Eve should have done. Is they should have stopped it quicker. Now, when you read in, in Matthew 4 about Jesus, he is tempted three times. But at a certain point, Jesus says, go away. Or you can read about Joseph. Who when Potiphar's wife tries, she grabs him by the cloak. He runs away. He gets out of the situation. James tells us in James 1 verses 13 through 15. That 
we, when we are tempted, we are lured and enticed by his own desire. And desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin. And sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Temptation in itself is not a sin. All of us will be tempted. Jesus was tempted. Temptation is not a sin. But when we recognize this is a temptation. This is a falsehood. This is something I shouldn't be doing. We stop it. Whether that's fleeing the situation like Joseph did. Whether that's standing up against the situation like Jesus did. We bring us quick in. The longer we allow ourselves to be tempted, the more likely we are to give in. Of course, pray. Matthew 6 verse 9 through 13. Remember in Jesus' example prayer, he ends that with, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Later in Matthew 26 verse 41, Jesus told his disciples, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now that doesn't mean that just because we pray enough that God is going to remove every single temptation out of our lives. There are obviously going to be times that God allows us to be tempted and tried. But who knows what temptations we might avoid through prayer. That's one of those things we don't get to see. We don't get the privilege of. I don't know if someday in heaven God's going to say, Hey, by the way, take a look at this. Here's all the times that I removed a temptation out of your way for you. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. Wouldn't that be incredible to see though? Who knows how many times God has intervened in some way on our behalf because we prayed that he would deliver us from temptation. And he answered and he responded and he did so. And we never even knew about it. Pray. Pray fervently for help. Also, as we've already mentioned, defeat it with the word of God. That's our sword. That's, that's how we go on the offensive and fight back against temptation. Every time Jesus was tempted, he said, it is written. When Satan twisted scriptures, Jesus showed what scriptures really meant. That means we have to know it, we have to read it, we have to study it, we have to talk about it. We have to grow in our knowledge of it. If you take one thing from this sermon, please take this away. If you want to overcome temptation successfully, you have to know the Word of God. We cannot be ignorant of God's Word and successfully overcome the devil. It will be impossible. Fight Satan's temptations with the Word of God. And lastly, hopefully in an encouragement, remember in every temptation... God's promise and protection. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What a wonderful promise. Sometime this week you're going to be tempted. I don't know what it will be. I don't know what your weaknesses are. I don't know how Satan's going to try and attack you this week, but I am positive that in some form, in some fashion, Satan will try to tempt you this week. And there will probably be allowed. God will allow you to face some temptations this week. But remember this. I know I asked you to remember the last thing above all else. So remember at least two things from this lesson. Remember, when you face a temptation, I hope this comes to your mind. You're facing that temptation because God knows you can overcome it. Because he wouldn't have allowed you to be tempted by it if you couldn't. 
And so the excuse afterwards that I couldn't help myself isn't going to cut it. Because if that was true, God wouldn't have allowed you to be tempted. When you're tempted this week, remember it's because God knows that you can overcome it. And there is a way of escape. He promises to provide it. Now that may not be an easy way of escape. It may take courage and it may take strength. But there will be a way of escape. And You remember that. And when you're facing that temptation, you remember God is faithful. He has been faithful to me. And choose to be faithful to him. Flee. Stand against it. Whatever you need to do. Remember God is with you. And choose to stand in the truth of God. And not yield to the temptation. Of our adversary the devil.